Hello, and welcome to the December uh, 2nd edition of the AAPI GoCast. Um, happy to have a couple of really cool guests this week. Uh, we have uh, Jake uh, Whisker and Mike Sedoni from um, Walk the Talk America. Hey, what's up? Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, thanks for taking the time. It's uh, oddly appropriate, uh, given the tragic uh, events uh, happening the last couple of days. So it's uh, glad to have you on the show. Um, and then, of course, we've got uh, Raphael, as usual. Hello. And uh, Malcolm, who we haven't seen in a while. So thank you for joining again uh, so we can uh, meet the uh, the the AA uh, quota for the day. <laughs> no, thanks for coming on, guys. All right. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I mean, since we do have uh, limited time with our guests there, um, just wanted to, you know, do a regular what you've been shooting segments. Has anybody been, uh, you know, the range this week, gotten any new uh, toys or, you know, ammo, anything like that? I had a box of ammunition delivered for our class that's upcoming, which I'm sure we'll discuss at some point. That's as close as I've gotten to the range in about three months, though. I can finally say yes. Um, nice. I was down south, uh, did some interesting shooting, shot a 3D printed Glock. I mean, the uh, south pretty, is basically a range, isn't it? Pretty much. Um, okay. Shot a 3D printed Glock. That was excellent. Picked up some really nice hollow points for a really low price. And uh, yeah, nothing else too crazy. Shot some normal guns down there. Scary guns up here. Yeah, I, um, I've lived in vegas since 2005 and for the first time i actually went shooting in the desert um which is kind of a unique experience i had never done that um very cool and basically i just brought you know everything that i own being from the firearms industry i have like 80 different guns in the safe right next to me so <laughs> we had everything from handguns to shotguns to ars wait wait mike when, when was that first time that you shot in the desert last week Wait, wait, no, I'm going to ask you again. Think back a few months. Oh, yeah, but that, was, that wasn't really shooting. That was watching Connie shoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was mostly me standing there. <laughs> I never have been to the Vegas desert to shoot there. There it is. Been yeah, up in the, the Reno Vegas desert. Is so much different than the Reno desert. Better. Hot. Expensive <laughs> yeah. shooting prone, or did you? Sorry? How, how, how was uh, shooting prone in the desert, or did you do that? No, I mean, it was... It, you know, it, it's really cool. You just kind of drive off of a BLM land and just go deep, deep down in, you, you know, you couldn't get there with a regular car. We had a nice truck, but, uh, you know, I thought, I thought it was interesting. There's all kinds of stuff that people leave out there for you to shoot TVs. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, actually one of the, the big sticking points with, uh, uh, not only BLM Rangers and environmentalists, but, you know, gun owners who are responsible is the, the trash that's left behind. It's, it's really despicable. Like, before there was the craze in ammo, people just left their brass. They didn't even collect their brass. They just go out, shoot wow. a bunch of rounds. They just leave it there, littering the desert. It's it's an eyesore. It's blighted, and mm. it's disgusting. I mean, like I'm trying to push this thing among among friends. Like, don't shoot glass in the desert because it's just it just makes a mess. You know, shoot cardboard, shoot wood. That's fine. Don't shoot appliances. Um, unless you plan on taking them back, which nobody ever does. So um, that is a problem. But to answer your question, though, about shooting prone in the desert, it's um, uncomfortable. Um, but it's it's also part of like the the training, I guess, too, is, you know, so in, in the therapy world, I'm a therapist by trade. But if people don't know that, this guns and mental health guys, um, you know, we say that anything that comes up in session is like grist for the therapeutic mill, meaning we can turn anything into a counseling project. 
uh, out in the out in the desert, you know, laying prone. If you're sitting on rocks or sagebrush or something, uh, there's weeds tickling your undercarriage. <laughs> uh, it's like, well, if you ever encounter that, you're gonna you're gonna want to be familiar with it, you know. So, um, you know, we can't all just be comfy and cozy when we're sighting in our rifles or whatever. So, it is. Uh, it's different. It's uncomfortable, but you know, you learn to deal with it. Yeah. I only ask cause, uh, the only time I've ever shot prone in the desert, I got, I inhaled a lot of sand and I didn't feel good after that. And, uh, I was curious about that, but I'm, <laughs> was that at a range event by any chance? That was, we don't really have okay. deserts up here in the Northeast. Uh, thankfully I don't, I don't like them very much, but it is what it is. Yeah. And in case you guys missed it, we, we had an event like around July, end of July, up in the kind of like high desert of San Jose, which is kind of nothing desert wise compared to, you know, Vegas or Nevada. But it was it was pretty deserty and, uh, you know, a lot of fun. Got to unload a lot of, uh, you know, ammo and get some good training out there. Um, unfortunately, I, I brought a watermelon and I really wanted to shoot my desert eagle at it, but it was so popular that everybody ran through my one box of ammo before I got a chance to do that. So I just... uh. I ended up bringing the watermelon home without uh, without incident. Yeah, Gallagher of the gun community. Yep. There's videos yeah. of both Malcolm and myself cackling <laughs> while shooting that thing. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, we should have shot that watermelon. A lot more yeah, and we should have just like dumped an AK you know? into it or something. <laughs> cool. So, have you been uh, shooting anything like recently, yeah. uh, Malcolm? No, just busy with traveling, and that's always, you know, a whole deal within itself when it comes to guns and shooting. So just just been traveling, haven't been too much going to the range. Yeah, I, I, I visited Reno again where my parents live for Thanksgiving and uh, went to Reno Guns and Range and, you know, got to shoot a full auto AK indoors. So that was fun. Um, first time I've ever done that. So it was it was satisfying. But I feel like, you know, outdoors is where that really needs to go. Did like you instantly... Desert. Did you instantly sprout the uh, Adidas tracksuit or uh, did that come a little bit later? It came a little bit later. I I actually went to the Lululemon outlet after that. So I was thinking about, you know, making an investment in uh, shapewear, uh, but uh, it didn't end up happening in time for me to get to the uh, get to the range with it. Yeah, as a certified Slav, I have to say um, everyone should own a pair of Adidas, which is the correct way to say it, of course. track pants they are the most comfortable thing to shoot in especially from a, a squatting position nice i i do have a good pair of uh adidas track pants i just haven't gone shooting in them before so that's a good do tip. it <laughs> okay i'll do I, I mean i have a red top too so i just need a gold chain and then uh, i can complete the look beautiful all right so nice. shall we get into it sure well, um, you know, thanks again for joining us, guys. There, I mean, um, I, I don't know how familiar our audience is with Walk the Talk America. Um, I mean, I'm pretty familiar with it, like ever since I heard about you guys on uh, Colin Noor's podcast. Um, but yeah, just for the benefit of our audience, uh, assume they're you know a five year old puppy and know nothing about Walk the Talk. Uh, love to you know kind of hear about uh, what it's what you're all about from uh, your perspective. That would be Mike's department. You kick it off, sir. Okay, so basically started this organization in 2018. Um, I grew up in the firearms industry. I got my job through nepotism. Uh, my family owned one of the biggest, largest importers of uh, firearms. And what you do is you find somebody like me who would buy your firearm if you live you're you know from another country, but you weren't big enough to have your own manufacturing in the U.S. So I'd buy it from you, sell it for you, uh, build your brand, handle your customer service, your warranty, everything like that. 
it's like a turnkey operation. Uh, some of our biggest firearms manufacturers were Versa, which is a gun out of Argentina, um, Grand Power, which is out of Slovakia, and uh, uh, like American Classic, which is out of the Philippines, right? A 1911 brand. Um, but we had guns from Spain and everything like that. But 2009, the, the president of my own company took his life with a firearm. And it was just something that was, it was very, at the time, we didn't talk about it. You didn't talk about uh, suicide by firearm because we were always afraid that it'd be used against us as an industry. It's something that I noticed not being a gun guy, like just kind of getting in through family, not not doing it as a hobby, um, that, you know, we would lose the people we hold de- near and dear to us, which is like our first responders, uh, active duty military. A lot of these people wouldn't, they'd be at a show one year and then you try to see them the next year and they were gone. Um, and it was just a weird thing because we never talked about it. But in 2018, I got the opportunity uh, after a chance meeting with somebody who was just curious about firearms and, and the whole process that there was a mass shooting that just had happened. And this person was like, hey, what's the deal when this happens? What happens to you guys? And I said, well, everybody blames the gun industry. Uh, we blame the mental health community. And then nothing ever happens. And she asked one question that changed my life and is the catalyst for starting the organization. She said, well, if you if you identified that problem, how do you work with the mental health community? You guys must work hand in hand to look for solutions. And that that's how it started. So I basically become obsessed with the idea. And I knew I needed to find a mental health organization that didn't stay gun neutral. Let's just say that, right? And I didn't even know if one existed. Um, you know, because I'd always just heard the horror stories about the mental health community and how they treated the firearms community and how we shouldn't trust them and they were all gun grabbers. But I came across position paper 72 from Mental Health America. And they start off as saying, this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but uh, we're going to stay gun neutral. We don't believe that removing the rights to firearms for people that battle mental illness is, is something that, that will work towards mitigating violence and, you know, tragedy. And I thought, okay, I got to talk to these people. Like, this is super important. So basically, you know, called up a lot of people in the industry that I knew that I had run this idea by. Some of them were my board members, like Colleen Noir. I said, hey, I want to go do this. And they're just like, all right, man, like, we'll totally support you. This sounds like a great idea. But it was basically started because I thought, hey, um, what if the gun industry donated money to the mental health community? And what could we figure out if we did that? Right. Because the mental health community was always saying, and even in position paper 72, they talk about, hey, with the lack of funding and how there's been cutbacks in funding over the years, it's harder to do outreach. Well, you know, I thought, okay, let's take the easy way out. But if I go around to all the people that I know from the manufacturers and get everyone to donate, it's like, hey, dollar gun. And that was the first thing I was going to do. I was going to donate a dollar gun. But I didn't know what that meant. Right. And I just wanted to stop the next mass shooter. I just wanted to stop suicides. Um, but unfortunately, you know, what I found from the mental health communities, they didn't have the answers either, right? It, it's always that things like something needs to be done. We need to do something. Both sides say it, right? You get people in the firearms industry say it. If you get the mental health community, you just get regular people say it. Everybody says, well, it forced me to look at the, the firearms industry and say, okay, we can't give legislation. And clearly just anyone could give money to mental health if they don't really have any programs or, or things like that, that, you know, can make a difference. What can we do as the firearms industry? You know, what valuable space do we have? Like, what are things that we could do differently? And that's really what the organization has become. So, you know, we do things like get uh, free and anonymous mental health screening flyers and firearm manufacturers boxes on ranges and gun stores. 
um, we train mental health clinicians and this is where I'm going to segue over to Jake because this is where he really came into the fold and he's been kind of the leader in, in driving this, this program, which I think is really neat. So Jake, take it from here. Yeah. So, uh, I happen to be wearing a wristband too. Wristbands are something we give out that says, uh, WTTA.org slash love. That's the, that's the website you go to to take the free anonymous mental health screening. Uh, so just to put a bow on that and those flyers that have the web, the web link are going into gun boxes. You know, the, the first thing you see when you open the gun box is your warranty information and your, you know, spent slug or whatever. And, and right on top of there is our flyer and it says mental health. It's okay to talk about it. And these are sitting on counters at uh, retail stores and ranges, like Mike said. So it's just, it's a passive invitation to go get one's mental health, you know, looked at. And my role is as the mental health guy, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist here in Nevada, I'm a national certified counselor. And uh, I own and operate a, an outpatient agency called Zephyr Wellness here in Northern Nevada. And um, what I did when I met Mike was I happened to be chairing my licensing board at the time. So we all have these licenses to, off, you know, to practice, whatever. And I had been instrumental in making some legislative change in Nevada. And it put me in touch with a lot of different uh, clinicians of different professional stripes. We'll say uh, you know, social workers, psychologists, drug and alcohol counselors. And of course, marriage and family therapist. And during that, the, the course of that, some of the work that we done was uh, directed at continuing education credit. So when you renew a license, you have to prove that you stayed atop the field and you studied up and you took these continuing education courses, some of which are in cultural competence. And so when I met Mike, I happened to be uh, hosting a podcast, which I still host called Noggin Notes. And it's a mental health podcast. And I thought, wow, guns and mental health this is really cool. They should be on my show. Uh, so I reached out to Mike and we had the show. And afterward, I was like, you know what we need to do? We need to teach practitioners, my people, the cultural competence that comes along with firearms culture. And it can be good for continuing education credit. And I can talk to all the other licensing boards and we can get them to, to authorize this for you know, continuing ed credit for not only cultural competence, but also suicide prevention. We'll talk, we'll integrate all this stuff. It'll be really rad, right? And uh, so the idea was born and that was 2019. And uh, I, I, I can't go without saying that the person who connected me to walk the talk in the first place was a very good friend of mine since college, Jordan Slotnick, who runs Reno Guns and Range, the aforementioned oh, nice. facility in Reno. His mom owns Love that it. place. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. They're, they're premier. They're elite. Uh, they do everything the right way. Very clean, very friendly, uh, very knowledgeable, very safe. And um, so Jordan and I had talked about this for quite some time, many years, uh, in fact, about what do we do to connect the two communities and not with the precision that Mike just laid out at all, but just kind of like, it seems something was missing. And one day he just texted me. He's like, Hey, have you heard of walk the talk America? And I look them, it turns out it's Mike <laughs> up. And, uh, I was like, they should be on my show. And so that that's, that's how it all came. So credit to, to Jordan and, and Reno guns have, have been, th those people have been such great uh, representatives of our organization, such great supporters that, um, you know, I, I have to, I have to give them a plug. So, um, long story short, we've offered several courses now for practitioners and we've touched more than 400 people now who've come through our beginning and intermediate courses. And now we're going to do the first ever advanced courses, three part course. There's three hours a piece. And the advanced course now is going to happen in just a couple of weeks from now at Reno Guns. They they host the the events, and um, 
we're going to do uh, some range time and the advanced course is going to dive into more of the policy end of mental health as well as some ethical stuff and some uh, we'll go through some vignettes. So like if a gun owner presents in your session and is uh, talking about his angsty teenager who's contemplating suicide or is just depressed over a breakup or whatever, we could say with confidence and articulate understanding of the language, where do you store your guns? How do you store them? Do we need to keep them away from your kid who's going through this thing, right? Without being weird and creepy and off-putting, but be like, do you have any guns? Uh, are there guns in the home? Uh, we should probably get rid of those because that's, that's, that scares people away. And then what ends up happening is gun owners don't get the treatment they need or their kids don't or whatever. They bottle this stuff up and then they take their own lives. And that really is what Walk the Talk is at its core is it's a suicide prevention organization and specifically suicide by firearm. And I want to drop some statistics real quick uh, for the listening audience. I'm sure you've all heard this before, but uh, with latest information that we have from the CDC, which is where we go for all of our data, um, say what you want about their policy decisions, but they, they do keep very good data. Um, 64% of all uh, gun deaths are by are suicide by firearm. And about 51% of all suicides are done by firearms. So if we want to move the needle on this, you know, quote unquote, gun violence stuff and deaths by gun, it's to go attack the suicides, not uh, anything else. Uh, homicides is a nice idea. Mass shooters represent less than 1% usually per year of deaths by firearm. So where do we go? We go to the suicides. And so we try to we try to intervene appropriately. And so this, this, these trainings are for not only mental health professionals, but also any frontline responder who would otherwise interface with somebody who may be a gun owner, which is roughly 50% of America, by the way, who either owns a gun or lives with somebody who does. So that's one out of every two patients we'd ever see um, who might be in crisis. And that includes your police, your uh, street level social workers, your community health workers, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, emergency room doctors, primary care physicians, nurses, anybody who would ever touch somebody who might be going through that crisis, school counselors. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to level up the amount of education and training and ability to use common colloquial firearms vernacular with these professionals who, uh, you know, talk to people who might be in distress and help tell, turn them the right way. That's awesome. Yeah, really great to hear about that. I mean, I that's I've always kind of been curious. Yeah. I mean, is there sort of a correlation between the mass shooter mindset and suicide? Because you always hear like suicide by cop being a big motivator. Yeah, it's uh, it's tough to pin down. So you're going to see a lot of literature that says that there that most people who commit the mass shootings uh, never had a mental health diagnosis. Yeah. Well. It's, it's pretty loaded. There's a lot that goes into that. And I'm going to try to unpack it as quickly as I can without boring everybody. Um, and this, this touches home for me and Mike, because we live in Nevada, which is you know home to the biggest mass shooting in U.S. history, which was the Route 91 con concert in uh, October of 2017. And, and just so everybody knows, the perspective on this is at that show, there were 58 people who died plus the, the shooter for a total of 59. So 58 innocents and a bad guy. Um, every day in America, 66 people take their own lives by firearm, by firearm. That doesn't count all the other suicides. That's just firearm. So every day in this, in this country, we have what amounts to a mass shooting, but it never makes the news. Why? Cause it's not sexy. Uh, doesn't, doesn't sell clicks. Right. But back to the point, um, your mass shooter 
typically won't have a quote unquote mental illness diagnosis because they never sought treatment. A lot of them uh, don't believe they have a problem or they are, they come from families who are inattentive, you know, broken homes. They're not paying attention to their kids. They don't necessarily notice that they're spiraling uh, school settings. I mean, th- this, this latest shooting is, is a prime example of this. Like there's lots of documentation that this kid was and his, and or his family and or his school administrators were contacted multiple times and uh, nobody did anything. And there's bureaucratic red tape that I'm not going to get into now because I'm very, very familiar with the educational system as well. Um, that really handcuffs people from being able to do anything. Uh, the, the, the federal, uh, the FERPA federal education rights and privacy act. Um, that's, uh, I think that's the acronym. It prevents people from breaking confidentiality to do certain things. And, and with a lack of understanding, we end up keeping things confidential that maybe need to be broken. Um, HIPAA is another one. You got cl- clinicians who are kind of stuck wavering on the fence about, do I break confidentiality or do I, you know, protect confidentiality and based on the information that's presented? So uh, we got a lot of work to do in that realm, uh, not necessarily our organization, but as a society, we have to we have to bust through that stuff so we can actually reach the people who are struggling and we can reasonably predict that they're going to cause harm to others and then act. Um, you know, and I, I hate red flag laws personally. I think they all should be struck from the books because I think they're worthless. We have data that show that they're worthless. Um, and they inhibit rights and they obstruct care access and they inhibit police from doing their jobs and so on and so forth. But in defense of the people who authored red flag laws, they thought they were doing the right thing because in my realm, there are certain things that you can do to take someone's freedom insofar as you're involuntarily committing them to a hospital for psychiatric care if they ideate suicide or homicide. And then in law enforcement, there are certain things that you can do to take somebody's freedom if they threaten a crime. But in the middle, there's a gray area where somebody may be vaguely ideating and maybe we don't know and maybe it involves a firearm. So the people who wrote the red flag laws were like, hey, you know, what's a good idea. If we just take the guns away, we'll keep people safe. And maybe while the guns are away, we can get them treatment. Well, it turns out that's that's not really manifested in the way that anybody thought. And all it's done is create more problems, including constitutional issues. But that's where we're talking about. It's like if we can empower people like school counselors and principals and uh, random neighbor next door to try to do the right thing. If they know that this potential mass shooter is going to go execute a bunch of people, um, maybe we can act. But again, what are the numbers? 2018 CDC data show that literally two tenths of a percent, 0.2% of all firearm deaths were from mass shootings versus, you know, 62% were suicides. It's like, well, where are you going to put your effort? You put it in the suicides. So I don't want to discount the the uh, mass shooters, but the idea of walk the talks efforts is that if we can get to the suicide stuff, if we can get to the mental illness, then we can possibly also prevent the mass shootings. So it's good. Um, coming in from kind of back at the beginning here. Um, so moving into this, this is obviously not a, a well-studied or well-talked about topic. Um, there's too much disconnect between, I'd say the two sides of the issue firearms and mental health. And generally, people who know a lot about one don't know a lot about the other. And obviously, that's what you guys are bridging. But what were the biggest surprises or challenges or both coming into this and trying to look at it from that um, bicameral position? What what was the uh, what were some of the major discoveries or surprises you had along the path? You know, the, for me, the the biggest discovery was that that the mental health side didn't have any answers. Um, you know, I was in a position to where 
I was super excited and I was running out and calling all these other manufacturers and I was like, Oh, we could be the good guys for once. Like we'll be able to just put, you know, pool our money. And you know, when, when the gun industry has good years, they have good years and uh, going there and having just some of the, the most decorated mental health professionals um, say, I need you to focus on suicide prevention, not mass shooters. Right. Like that was a shocker to me because I was like, no, no, I want to do suicide too. But I also want to stop the next mass shooter. So finding out that stopping the next mass shooter is literally like finding a needle in a haystack. Um, it's just very difficult. So that was a that was a big surprise. Now my biggest challenge, uh, the biggest challenge I would say, you know, it's, it's funny because you have, you know I always thought that I was going to be looked at as like somebody that you know when you show up to mental health uh, conferences and things like that, and you're considered the gun guy. Um, you know, I was, I was prepared to get a lot of pushback. Thank God I've never gotten that, that that's worked out really well in my favor. Um, but I mean, some of the biggest challenges is our side. Um, we have a tendency because we're so like conditioned by what the NRA rhetoric was like gun grabbers and the mental health people that if you hear suicide and firearm in the same sentence, it's like, stop blaming the gun. You know what I mean? And that, that was, that's the biggest challenge is, is, is more from our people um, is, is trying to explain to them, no, we're not giving up any rights. We're not backing any legislation. We're actually just looking for solutions. This is for one, something you could be proud of, you know, you probably from a cold dead hands, but now you're also doing something. You're being socially conscious, right? You're actually doing stuff to prevent suicide and, and get people the help they need when they're in crisis without fear of consequence. Like this is something our industry needs to be proud of. And that's been the biggest challenge is, is getting some of the, you know, you say like the old timers that are just ingrained in that whole belief system. Like, oh, you can't talk to those people. They'll touch you on the arm and you'll become anti-gun. You know, th those things. <laughs> and how much of this is, do you think might be generational? Because I'm Gen Z myself and uh, my generation's obviously both very into guns and much more conscious of mental health issues than say uh, baby, baby boomers. So do you think there's any kind of generational rollover that's happening and helping there? Or is it more a cultural shift in general? I don't know, Jake, what's your opinion? I mean, we we're just at San Jose State. We didn't get any pushback. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm yeah, trying to think from our really, side. It was a really positive experience. Um, I, want to, I want to answer Ross's question from my perspective. The, the biggest surprise I had actually speaks to that, the, the generational difference. So I was, I always owned firearms. I came from a family full of cops, but I wasn't a gun guy. Um, it wasn't, I didn't understand it. It was just a tool for a job, you know, law enforcement, whatnot, uh, hunting, we hunted, but um, it wasn't recreational. It wasn't competition. I, I didn't get the culture. And so uh, I'll, I'll get back to something I want to say now later. So that has no bearing at all on the conversation because you don't know what's in my head, <laughs> but I promise I'll get back to it. Um, but the, uh, the biggest surprise I had was when I, when I went to the, um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, 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 geez, where were we in, in, um, in Arizona, the, the, the gun rights policy, yeah, the gun, gun rights policy conference. Um, I, Mike introduced me to all these people I'd never met before. And, it's it's all your your people that you know on Instagram, uh, Kevin Dixie, Argo J, um, Rob Pincus, who's on our board, um, and a handful of others. Uh, met Maj there, and I was like, man, these people are like me. We're all the same age, like we're all we're all youngish, right? And, and and oh, by the way, the diversity. Like I met I met chicks. I met I met Yehuda there. Um, it, it's like 
I had, I had completely the wrong impression about what the gun community was. That was the biggest surprise to me. And every event I've ever been to since then has honestly warmed my heart. Um, and I get that I'm coming in from an outsider and I understand there's friction between camps, but, but that, that happens. You're a big family, people fight. Um, but they all have two a in common. And I was like, I can get on board with this. Like, this is great. Everybody's like rowing the same direction in the boat for all mostly. Um, so that was cool. That was a big surprise. The challenge is the thing I was going to mention earlier that normally rolls off my tongue there, which is I had to come out of the closet to my clinical community. So as much as Mike says, it, you know, our people are being sticks in the mud. My people are being sticks in the mud too, because I was worried about the social blowback that I was going to receive by saying I'm a gun owning clinician because our people don't like guns. It's, I, I, I don't, I have some theories about why that is, but, um, the point is it exists and I know it exists because I've run in those circles for enough years and I've heard the whispers in the hallways and in supervision meetings and in classrooms. And it's like this kind of snarky, condescending, pejorative, like eh, guns it's, and, and, Oh, by the way, we're supposed to be the most non-judgmental people on the planet. And we're supposed to talk about the most sensitive subjects anybody's ever encountered. And yet we're not talking about that subject and we're being judgmental about it. It's like, this has to stop. So when back in 2019, when I was like, hem, ha, hem, ha, how much do I get into this walk the talk America thing? I was like, no, I got to go in with both feet because I can't halfway it. So I just said, yep, I, I'm a gun owning clinician. I've had guns my whole life, you know, deal with it. And I got blowback and I, you know, whatever, uh, I gained more friends than I lost. I'll just say that. So I'm, I'm very proud of the work that we've done. However, for as many people have taken our course, we're trying to build this registry on the website of gun-friendly clinicians or practitioners, and they're just not signing up. And I think it's probably because of the stigma. Nobody wants, nobody in my community wants to be seen as a gun owner because their own peer colleagues have just mouthed off forever about how guns are the devil or whatever in their little private circle. So to me, that's very sad, and that's where that's the challenge, and that's where the work has to be done. I can definitely, um, uh, yeah. I can definitely see that. My very first mm -hmm. uh, big boy job, I guess, was I was data engineering for a disability advocacy company. Yeah, and, and I'm a we were, Silicon Valley in the tech industry, so like case well, in point, it's like we were <laughs> we were in an we were in an inner city area, and uh, I couldn't mention a thing about what I did on weekends. Um, the stigma was horrific because I mean people were shot outside all the time. I don't live in a particularly mm -hmm. nonviolent city, uh, but. Like, uh, for example, expenses that couldn't be covered included any any firearms related stuff. And that's not a legal thing. That's just. Uh, um, that was because of the sentiments of that organization and that kind of opened my eyes to like the uh, I guess in the caretaking or care or, or, or um, medical services industry and community, um, the kind of stigma helping professions, that. we call them. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar enough. I got out of that sector as quickly as I could. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> well, yeah, case in point, like one of our biggest members behind the scenes is an M EMT, basically. And he like, you know, sort of is just very hesitant about like coming on um, because of that. And it's understandable because it's like there's a stigma uh, in a lot of different fields, I feel like. And it's uh, well, kind of unwarranted. Yeah, I'm EMTs, not going to out him, no, no, but no. you know who I'm talking e about. EMTs <laughs> are more often packing than not, especially my wife's an EMT. She's non-practicing, but where she grew up, um, it was, it's really common to see EMTs carrying because sometimes there's not going to be a cop there when they get there. But EMTs are an exception. Those guys are really tough. 
Yeah, I want to push back on something Scott was bringing up, though, is like, it's understandable. No, I disagree. I don't yeah. think it's understandable at all. I, and I think that if we're going to have podcasts and conversations like this, then it's nice to learn things, right? Don't get me wrong. But we also have to be challenging the listening audience and each other to say, no, that's not understand. I don't understand yeah. why you would do that. Help, help me help explain to me why you would take this particular position. Because chances are pretty good they've never examined it before. And there's no judgment there. We all have what Carl Jung would call introjects, these unquestioned beliefs or assumptions about how the way the world works. And then we like anchor ourselves to them. But we need to examine them. If we want to return to them, that's fine. We can return to our beliefs and hold them you know, as, as tightly as we want once we've examined them. But a lot of them, I think, are completely unexamined. But we hold tightly to them anyway. And then when somebody challenges it, it's like, hey, you know, not all gun owners shoot people what do you mean? Like, well, I'm yeah. one of them. Oh, you know, cognitive dissonance comes in. So I, I would like to to have more of that kind of conversation where you go, you know what? No, that's, that's not acceptable. It's, 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 you know, part of our, what we teach is uh, getting rid of the use of the, the word safe when it comes to storage. Um, you can be safe in a lot of ways, but the word safe has been watered down over the pandemic. And it's also very subjective in its definition from person to person. So when we're talking about storage, we're trying to introduce the the definition that says responsible storage, not safe. Responsible storage is preventing unauthorized access. Well, what does unauthorized mean? Anybody who's not supposed to have that gun, including possibly the owner in a time of mental illness crisis. If you're if you're you know if you're drunk, you should not be accessing your guns. If your child is not, you know. Uh, well, even if they're 16 years old and they take guns out and shoot them with you all the time, if they're not well because they just had a breakup, they should not be accessing the guns. The neighbor's kids should not be. So, you know, um, we want to ch start challenging these concepts that have been handed down. It's like, I'm a safe gun owner. Everybody, I learned this from Mike and from Rob. Like everybody in the gun community thinks they're the safest people on the planet, and they largely are. Um, but where do you store your guns? Are they stored responsibly? Like I'm the safest person on the planet. I got seven guns all tucked under pillows and, you know, <laughs> mattresses and it's, and they're loaded and chambered. Anytime ISIS wants to kick in my window at 3am, I'm ready to go. It's like, you have children in the house. Like, yeah, exactly. What are you doing? Well, it's kind of funny because like the only reason I was able to convince my wife, I'm a relatively new gun owner, <laughs> uh, you know, just bought my first firearm like a year and a half ago now, Welcome. Um, almost two years ago. And like, the deciding factor was Voltec. Uh, I mean, not to shill for one company, but it was like I was able to show her, wow, this is very quick and easy access safe. I could put it in there and keep everything separate and still be able to access it if, you know, something unfortunately terrible happens. And that was like a big deciding factor for her. Mike's got a great, great uh, uh, phrase on that. You want to you want to share it? I learned from you. But <laughs> basically train is hard retrieving your firearm from your safe as you do training with your firearm. It's like, for some reason, like as guys, gun owners, like we'll brag all day long, like how much training we do and train. And then for some reason, when it comes to getting it out of the safe, it's like, well, we gotta, it's gotta be ready. It's like, no, you know, you could literally train just as hard retrieving it. Like I have a safe right here that you guys can't see it's off camera, but you know, it's got, it's got the uh, push code. And I sit there all the time when I'm on the phone talking to people and I just run my fingers over it. I could just do it in my sleep. You know what I mean? I could do it yeah. in the dark. I, I, I do that. Honestly, it's kind of, it kind of weird, but it's like, I've got a mantis tech thing on my thing. And then I just like go do, 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 and then pop it out. And then just like, so you know, practice in my room. Yeah. 
So Jake, you're saying that because there's that stigma with guns among like the clinician community, they don't know how to give the correct or yeah, the best recommendation for their stigma, clients, for their patients, too. because I mean, so they're not familiar like, with it. Is that, is that what you're saying? So 47% is the latest poll that I saw. 47% of Americans either own a gun or live mm -hmm. with somebody who does. So I say, you know, roughly half your clientele is going to be, you know, exposed to guns. Well, that means the other half isn't. And, um, for some reason, a higher percentage of those people land in our field. And so they just don't know. And, and, and that's fine. Not knowing is fine. We, there's lots of stuff we don't know, but you got to train up for it. So if I don't know about a certain demographic and roughly one out of every two people might be in that demographic who walks through my door, I'm, I better damn well train myself in understanding that demographic. So what I want people to do is to learn common language that is used among the gun community, but also to presume that, especially in Nevada, uh, certain, you know, geographic areas are going to skew that percentage mm -hmm. higher or lower. Um, San Francisco, much, much lower. Rural Nevada, much, much higher, right? So I, I'm telling people to presume that the person who walks through the door has guns and don't bring it up. We don't bring up anything else awkwardly or, or unnecessarily just because we're uncomfortable with it. We don't ask about somebody's, you know, uh, STD status unless it, unless the person brings it up. That's what we're taught in counseling. Like don't go there unless the client goes there. Um, but if somebody says, Hey, you know, I'm worried about my, my, uh, my teenager who's, you know, just, uh, failed in a, a big exam and, uh, got dumped by his girlfriend. The first question out of my mouth would be, do you think there's depression or suicidal ideation. And, and I do that purposely because it gives them an option. I don't want to just hit them with like, do you think he's suicidal? It's like, that's, that's really heavy. And people don't know how to answer that. They probably haven't asked their kid, but I'll give them an out. It's like, do you think he's depressed or suicidal? And like, he might be suicidal. Okay. Even if he's depressed, I still get to ask the next question, which is where are your guns stored? I don't ask, do you have guns? I ask, where are they stored? Because there's a presumption that they own them. And instantly that creates rapport with the, the person with whom I'm speaking because they go, oh, this guy presumes I own guns. He mm -hmm. might own guns. Well, they don't know if I do or not, but I'm presuming they do. And then they go, well, they're in the, wherever they are, right? And then if I'm competent, if I've taken the Walk the Talk America courses, um, I can follow up with something like, who has the combination to the safe? Does your son have access, right? And, and look them straight in the eye and not fidget and fumble and, and be awkward about it. That's what I want to have happen. It, again, back to suicide, right? We're not interested in teaching people how to red flag their patients. That's despicable. Uh, for Clinically, for a bunch of reasons, including that's not the first thing you go to. Um, but we want to teach them how to be responsible. It's about education, not restriction. That was long-winded. Yeah, I hope I answered it. You know, yeah, that, that makes total sense. Like, I'm, I'm kind of curious, though, like, you know, unfortunately with this, you know, Oxford yeah. mass shooting, parents bought yeah, a gun five right. days before it yeah. happened. I mean, would a safe be the answer in that case? Or would it be just like, okay, don't buy the gun. Or if you already own the gun, take it to an FFL who's like willing to store it for you when you know that you have if, a child or family yeah, member in crisis. If you don't, if you don't have a safe get a cable, get a padlock, put it through the action and lock it to something. Well, it like, comes with, it comes with it, right? Yeah. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to come with it. Well, you have to, it's federal law. Used, but, but... Right. Yeah, there you go. Um, 
you know, the the issue there too is uh, really what blows my mind is there was two incidents the day before mm-hmm. that the school had to talk to the parents. So, you know, the fact that these parents were, you know, they left it. That's complete negligence on their part. Like you don't take those chances. I, I don't take those chances. My kids grew up around firearms because of me and having them in the house. And I don't take those chances, you know, and, and like I said, there's like 70 guns in this house, but you know, I think, I think the answer there is, is, and this is where I really feel like the manufacturers can get behind this. Right. And, 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 and the gun shops and stuff like that, like this should be something that is brought up. Like, Hey, you bought this. Do you have kids in the house? Like, let's get you a safe. Let's get something, you know, we got to get out of this whole, like, ice is kicking down the door at 3 a.m. You need to have your guns loaded and laying around at all times. Well, like, and, and the other thing, too, is I think we got to get out of the mentality. We got uh, somewhere between 12 and 20 new million new gun owners, right? Nobody knows the actual number in the last uh, 18 months. And that's awesome. But are they training? Are they buying locking mechanisms? Because uh, from the statistics and the numbers and the data I've read, chances are pretty strong that the people buying them aren't because they're buying them out of protection, out of defense, out of fear, which is, you can debate whether that's justified or not. It doesn't really matter. But the point is new demographics are buying them and it's not the wealthy. So do the people who are buying these have the extra cash laying around to drop $170 on a vault you know, touch code safe. Do they, are they buying, are they buying the, the $400 discounted by $100 say, you know, stand up 12 rifle safe at Costco. Chances are pretty s- slim that they're doing that. So part of the messaging I'm trying to, to push to is like, get out of the, the mindset that you look at a, at a, a concealed carry gun and you're ready to go defend yourself and your family for the first time. And oh, that's great. And you're looking at the, you know, some Glock 43 that costs you 600 bucks at, uh, plus tax. Um, you need a holster. You need a safe. Uh, and, and possibly an extra safe, depending on where you store it, right? You store it in your car, or you store it in your nightstand. Um, so it's not, it's no longer a $600 plus tax purchase. It's more like a thousand plus dollar purchase. And, and people just need to like embrace that if we're going to be responsible welcoming these new gun members into the community. Yeah, I mean, case in point, it's like, I mean, I mentioned my case, you know, being a new gunner. It's like, and then I had a friend, like, he wanted to get one too as soon as I bought one. Mm-hmm. And again, deciding factor was just like letting him know about the quick access to safe technology that's out yeah. there to make that, because uh, he's got a little kid too. I mean, I've got a nine-year-old and he's got a you know, five-year-old. So it's like, to me, it's irresponsible not to have a safe. But yeah. on the flip side, like devil's advocate wise there, it seems like a lot of the safe storage laws are kind of like red flag laws where, they're great in theory, but then there's a uh, component of uh, a police search or something like that, like mandatory inspections um, that kind of crop up in some of those laws. So I feel like, you know, it's I feel like, you know, you should do it. But also it's like I'm not sure I'm down with like police inspecting your home to make sure that you have everything in a safe place, you know, at random. Yeah, but you wonder yeah. you wonder how like yeah. You know, it's kind of like when I met with Metro Jake down here. And I was being with like the Las Vegas Metro. We were talking about red flags all, and all these cops are like, I'm not enforcing that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like yeah. you got to remember too, like laws are great in theory. <laughs> it's like if it makes you feel better, there's a lot of cops that just freely admit that they won't do something. 
There's a lot. Yeah, but there I are, agree with there you. I, you don't want anyone will. busting through. I don't. I I think that's kind of uh, a separate issue. That if we mm-hmm. if you start me on that, I will go forever. Yeah, it's it, the the problem as I've uh, encountered it is that the laws are uh, drafted by people who who have good intent and are wildly uneducated. And in Nevada, and in this particular instance, because that's where we live, we our legislature meets every two years for 120 days. That's it. They have to cram all that work into 120 days every two years. And they just don't get the time. They don't take the time either because uh, there's ways you could do that. They don't take the time to consult all the people who could possibly be touched by this, otherwise known as stakeholders. Um, and the stakeholders who were not consulted on Nevada's ERPO law were the law enforcement officials and the mental health professionals. No, Nobody asked us what we thought of this. And if they had, law enforcement would have said, that is the worst idea on the face of the planet because you got Fourth Amendment issues, you got Second Amendment issues, you got storage issues, you got Fifth Amendment issues. And the mental health professionals would have said, that's a care barrier. And when you're in Nevada, when we're 51st in the country for like the umpteenth year running in behavioral health provision, uh, not kidding, 51st when you count D.C., um, the last thing you want is more barriers to care by some legislation that isn't going to help anyway. Um, but you know what it does score? Political points for your for your base, you know, if you yeah. can say you did something. So this is kind of a, a specific question, and uh, I'm not sure how helpful this will be, but... Um recently I had a friend who was going through some stuff and they wanted to give me their guns. I live in a state where we don't have easy private transfers and it takes a good amount of time. Uh, a relative of mine was going through something a while ago. They live in a state where they do have private transfers and he was able to hand off his guns. So how much of a difference do you think that not necessarily even the legal aspect of it, because plenty of places still have private transfers, but that culture of say, I'm going through a rough time. I don't really want to have these bang sticks around right now. Can you hold on to these until I let you know I'm feeling myself again? Um, do you think that's like a, a component? Yeah, I think, I think we're, we're starting to move towards that. And, you know, as the, as the cult, gun culture, I think one thing that we have to understand is, and this is why like walk the talk America is just such a um, important organization for the mental health side. Right. Because I'll give you an example. I remember the very, first document that I we co-authored with Mental Health America, and they were totally behind giving your guns in a time of crisis to somebody else. And they wrote this thing and they had me come over there, you know, hey, look at this, look at this. And I read it over and I was like, oh yeah, you got to change this. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you, you know, in, in certain states, you can't just hand your gun to a friend in a time of crisis. And I remember the, the vice president of Mental Health America was blown away by that. She's not a gun person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She was like, are you kidding yeah. me? I was like, yeah, there's no like good Samaritan clause that you were doing something, you know, positive for somebody. Um, I mean, even so. if so, you should be able to give like a, a locked container to somebody and it shouldn't count as a transfer. There should really be yeah. some kind of legislative exception for that. And or like an FFL or a gun store or something well, like that's that. What you I mean, it's do. like, yeah. But then you have to go so talk to your FFL you and say, hey, really I'm giving you some guns. Yeah. I want you to hold on to them until I feel better. And yeah, depending but don't on put how... them in your registry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I teach on this because in Nevada, the the ERPO law and the um, ERPO 
for those of you who don't know, is extreme risk protection order, otherwise known as a red flag law. So it's like it's like a, a protection order, like a, what we call a restraining order. It keeps people away from each other. Uh, this protection order keeps guns away from people, right? But it was passed at the same time as the transfer law was passed. And the transfer law does, in its defense, it has an exception for times of crisis. Uh, and it, and it uh, reads something to the effect of, so long as uh, necessary, immediate... Uh, you know, applicability, um, you know, that kind of thing. But nobody bothers to define those those adjectives. We don't know what immediate is. We don't know it so long as necessary is. And so what it does is it has, it, it casts this chilling effect on what you guys referred to as the, the Good Samaritan portion, where it's like, I don't know if so long, temporarily so long as necessary to, you know, to alleviate the crisis. It's like, is that two hours? Is it three days? Is it three months? I don't, I don't really know. And that all the while you're holding this person's firearms without a background check, which costs money, by the way, and time and is, is a pain. And if there are many guns, you have to, you know, register them all um, at your FFL or whatever. So it, it adds, it, it just acts as a chilling effect to, to deter people from doing the right thing. Here's what, what WTTA has come up with um, and credit to Rob Pincus for this. Uh, take a part. Take a significant part that does not constitute the gun. So an unserialized portion of the gun, like give your the slide bolt carrier group or the slide or the, or the, or the bolt itself or the firing pin or some, some other mechanism. Right. And the idea is to create time and space. And Michael talk a little bit about cause of pause, which is a cool campaign, but it's creating time and space in that moment of crisis. So if I go over to your house, Raph, and I, and I, and you're in, you're in crisis, you're like, I'm just, I'm just not doing well. I think I might do something that I'll, I'll later regret. Um, I'll be like, cool. We're in, where are you? New York. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're not allowed to even like look at each other's guns. Um, uh, so Pretty like, much. here's what you can do. Give, give me, your, give me all your bolts. Give me, give me all your slides or whatever. And I can fit those in a bag. Right. Cause some of the compl- complications is like, well, I don't know if I can store 17 guns in my home, <laughs> but I can definitely store a lunchbox worth of parts. Now, is that going to solve the problem? If you're really hell bent on taking your own life or somebody else's, no, you're going to go down the store and it's much more deliberate, but we're trying to stop the impulsive act. And that's where I want to kick it over to, to Mike to talk about cause of pause, which is another WTTA thing. If I can take a moment, I actually have to hop yeah, off. Yeah. I just want to thank you guys for uh coming on um really really appreciate the work you're doing uh this has been something i've uh, i'm definitely going to be following you guys more closely in the future because this is phenomenal thank you so much thanks man yeah thanks, appreciate Rob. being here yeah thank well you. it looks like eugene popped in to take your place so now we're uh you know really cooking with the uh Perfect. ai quota <laughs> all right yep the uh good old tag team Mike, you want to talk about cause of pause? Yeah, cause of pause. So that's the other cool thing is like going through this process and, and trying to look for different innovative ways or get firearms companies, safe manufacturers, people that say like, okay, what can you do? Like, what can you do? There's something you can do, right? You can't just be like, we can't do anything, right? So we came up with this concept called uh, cause of pause. I don't know if you guys could see it here, but so my safe is back there. Can mm-hmm. you see that there's two fo- mm-hmm. those two photos right there? Yeah. Uh, those are yeah. my... Those are my daughters, right? Um, I keep that on the safe. Uh, not that I'm, I'm, I'm ever in the mood to do anything like that. I'm, I'm pretty lucky. But if I were, if I were in crisis and if there's anything that could stop me from doing something tragic, it's going to be those two faces. 
right? So that's one of the things that we recommend like safe companies talk about, like own it. Like, don't say like, oh, we can't talk about suicide because we don't want to encourage it or anything like that. No, like say, hey, like cause a pause. Like this is something we do in Canon safe right now. Um, you know, they have the the mental health flyer and all their, all their uh, products. And on the back of the flyer, they actually talk about the cause of positive campaign. Like, Hey, it's not a bad idea to keep something that you love, whether that's an object, you know, maybe it's a medal you've won. Um, you know, maybe it's family members. Nice. Yeah, exactly. That's on my safe. Uh, cause you know, the pushback on that is from, from some of the suicide preventionists is, well, sometimes family is the reason you want to take your own life. Cause you believe that you're a burden to them. And so that may actually accelerate the process. Well, I was like, ah, that's fine. Uh, for me, I know that if I look at that sticker next to my safe, it says guns, mental health, and it's got my, yeah, we got another sticker. It's me and Mike as cartoons, which is kind of fun. Um, I know that if I took my own life, especially with a firearm, it would invalidate all the work that I have done and this organization has done. And I won't, I will never dishonor that. So that's my cause of pause on my safe. It's, just, it's the sticker of our, of our organization. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, it's like, for me, it's like my, I mean, just to get candid here, like my aunt committed suicide when I was like eight and we were pretty close to her and I saw what it did to my grandma and I saw what it did to my mom, like just totally like this gap that's gone. And it's like, I just feel like I would never even consider it after that point. But right. it's, you know, who knows what would have happened with, uh, with, with her in that case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, to, to add on to that, so I I work at a gun range in Philadelphia, and we have had we have had more than enough um, suicide attempts happen at the range, um, and so like that's one of the reasons why pretty much every almost every range has a policy in which if you are by yourself and you do not have your own firearm with you. We will not rent you a gun. Uh, it doesn't matter like how you argue. It doesn't matter like how aggressive you get with it. But it's just one of the steps that we've tried to take in order to re- reduce the amount that that happens there. And maybe that's really like, cool. People reconsider. You know what we need to do? We need to get you guys some flyers to stick on the counter. Yeah, totally. Well, I have some to- right here, actually. Here, I'll show it for the camera. So it it on the front side it says mental health. It's okay to talk about it. And then it says little things like, you know, as firearms owners, you know, we need to take responsibility. And on the backside, if you know some people in your community who are mental health professionals who are 2A friendly and, you know, gun competent, you can have them stamp their their stamp there or like put a sticker on. And so it's it's basically a free plug that says, hey, I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm going to be here if you gun owner want to come and get some treatment. So um, these are really uh, you missed the first part. Uh, but the, the it's a passive way to invite people to check check on themselves, and if you put it in at a gun range, it's like you're like, what is that doing there? <laughs> it's like automatic credibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I I was I was very uh, excited to when I heard that you guys would be on, and the main reason for that is like personally, you know, being introduced to firearms only like a couple of years ago and really getting into it. Um, one of the kind of pieces of rhetoric that you always hear is, oh, you know, guns are the cause of so many deaths per year. And they don't, people, whenever they use that rhetoric, don't 
really ever go into the specifics of it when they talk about the breakdown because you know of course majority of it is suicides and people will then say oh well then you know if you ban guns then people stop killing themselves with guns yes but if someone is at the point in their life where they are ready to to end their own life the tools aren't going to change right whether or not they go through with it that's you you can play the you can play the numbers game and and try and reduce in this area, but you're not going to change the overall. Yeah, you're not, like, not getting to the root cause of it. That's why I don't like. And so I don't when like I heard you guys flag on, I was just like, oh, "This is yeah, great. This is exactly I, I think it was Connecticut about. was the first red flag law it came out in 2009, um, but New Jersey was the one that was like right after it. And uh, New Jersey's data, they, they, people love to trot that out and say red flag laws work because uh, gun suicides were down 40 percent over the next you know 12 years or whatever. It's like, how is your overall suicide rate? Oh, it went up, just like the rest of the country. So, like, let's let's dispense with the the false equivalence there and pretending that this this legislation does something when all it really does at the end of the day is prevent people from defending themselves as they see fit, which is which is truly why we have firearms. Eugene, we have a we have to, to say that all the time when we speak. I think we said that at San Jose State last week or two weeks ago. Is like we don't we're not here saying that we're going to stop suicide by any means, and that's kind of a dark comment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but w- what we're trying to do is do our best to get the firearms industry to to be proactive, to get where the alcohol industry got with DUIs, and do our best to stop suicide by firearm. Well, I'm kind of curious. Like, well, I mean, how has the reaction like, I mean, been to the, the like? Been to have the, you worked with like the anti-gun like, establishment, like every town, like or every town. no moms mm-hmm. demand action? No have they been receptive to that, or are they just so anti-gun that they don't want to listen to another perspective? Perspective. No, no, I'll I'll handle that one, Jake, and then you can just add to it. But um, one of the one of the coolest stories I have, because now I get invited to all kinds of things that I never got invited to events in DC and stuff like that. And I remember the first mental health uh, event I went to on the East coast, I was, I was buying drinks for, there was a group of us all kind of standing around talking and I was buying drinks and this uh, guy goes, Hey, you better Google my name before you buy me a drink. And I was like, why? He's like, Oh, I'm one of the, the lawyers for Brady. And I work up on a lot of legislation. I was like, ah, oh, come on. It's all right. Like, <laughs> you know, we can agree on 10 different things. We might disagree about guns, but you might be the same type of person, right? So I'm going to buy you a drink. Like, I'm not going to judge you just because you don't like guns. But it was really fascinating because once we started talking, he was like, well, what does your organization do? And I, I actually had the flyers in my pocket. I was showing him the flyers and he, he was looking at it and he goes, you, you get you get gun manufacturers to put this in the box? And I go, yeah. And he's like, that's really cool. He's like, do you mind if I keep this? And I was like, sure, go ahead. So once again, I think we don't have that pushback because those organizations are banking that the gun industry literally doesn't have any solutions. They, they, they want you to, they, they, they're so confident going up against us because they think we're just going to be like pry it from my cold dead hands and yeah. end the conversation yeah. that when you blow them away, when you offer all these different solutions and they're like, that's a great idea. This isn't rocket science, man. Like this is just about me reaching out across the aisle and just being like, look, we can't give you legislation. What can we do here? Let's get creative. Um, and I think that helps. And Jake, I mean, you, we just we just did something with Moms to Man Action. We spoke at the same event as Moms to Man Action, and Jake and I were up there t- talking. And if you read the article, which we will send to you, um, the article that the, that the local newspaper put out on it, um, the the lady from Moms to Man Action literally says, "I'm so glad Walk the Talk America was there 
because they drew the conversation back to suicide yeah. by yeah. firearm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's honestly yeah, like that, a that's big part of why we like tried to found our own organization because it's like, I mean, you're right. If the NRA is just like so rhetorical, it's like big turnoff for people, especially, I mean, like me, like, I mean, I've gotten shit on this on CNN because I, you know, voted for Biden. I'm kind of regretting it now, you know, just because of Afghanistan and everything like that. But it's like the stigma is that you're a Democrat. What do you know about guns? Are you going to take it away? And it's and it's not the case. I mean, I just feel like you know, if the two A should be a politically neutral thing, thing, and everybody and, wants you know, to prevent everybody mass wants shootings. Prevent I mean, no one likes shootings. to see I mean, that, no one but you don't get that, that perspective that from perspective the NRA at all. It's like NRA at all. It's like cold pride for my cold dead hands in response to five kids getting shot. You know, yeah, right. Stay in your lane. Yeah, remember when they told the doctors? Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those things where really big change happens on an individual level and when you start kind of erasing the faces of the people that are part of it and just sticking them into a group or an organization and saying oh that's that it becomes really easy to to hate them or to like be antagonistic towards them and, and be in the mindset of us versus them when in reality you know these overarching organizations may have a problematic um message or, or method but the members in it don't all subscribe to that theory full stop they they may believe in the core principle of it and think they're doing what they what they can do best in order to affect change and being part of this organization gives them some kind of boost or some kind of of, of uh, yeah, it's it's why I spend a lot of time talking about identity and how we should hold loosely to our what we think are our identities because we're very deep as human beings and um, what we don't want to do is put labels on people's labels are very limiting they're very defining and what are we defining them as well it's, we're defining them as what we see not necessarily what they are and human beings being so. Uh, varied and deep and complex and um, eternal, uh, full of eternal potential um, to, to put a label, whether that label be uh, your job title or uh, the, the, the demographic you house uh, or, or reside in or the political party you affiliate with is, is in and of self-limiting and it, and it therefore confines you. And I don't want to be confined and I don't want to confine other people. And what I've found very interesting through this journey is that the broad diversity of people who are in the gun community is nothing like anything I've ever seen. I I was born and raised in Reno, Nevada, which is not exactly the cultural, you know, <laughs> breadbasket of, of, of the world. But um, I've, I've found that there's so much more in common than there is different. And so I, I've, even as a clinician, I've been very well trained to meet people where they are and, and honor whatever they bring to the table and then teach that to others. But even through this process, I found myself evolving to, uh, you know, realize that I, I didn't have a clue about what it meant to be part of the, the gun community. Um, Randy, me, and I'll give him credit for this from liberal gun owners. He, he and I were on a call one day some time ago, and he's like, you know, who's going to change all this? It's us. It's, it's our generation. It's our, it's, it's not going to be the big three letter organizations that we're all familiar with. It's going to be AAPIGO. It's going to be black guns matter. It's going to be 
guns for everybody. It's going to be 2A for everyone. It's going to be GAO. It's going to be all these little, it's going to be LGO, LGC. Um, it's going to be all these other very diverse organizations. And it would be cool to, to get one umbrella again, because mm-hmm. that's how you really make change and how you have a big voice. But I think through things like this, we, we need more podcasts for sure, <laughs> but more, more conversations, more dialogue, more connectivity. Um, we end up all saying the same thing, wherever we're saying it in person, online, the message is don't mess with my rights. You don't, you don't know who I am. Please sit down and ask and I'll tell you. Right. And then, and then it invites a much broader dialogue. So, you know, clinicians don't get pigeonholed into being anti-gun just because a lot of them are. And as it turns out, going back to San Jose, um, I sat down with the moms and man gals who spoke and, uh, and they truly in their heart of hearts believe that they are not anti-gun. They truly, truly believe that they're like, we are not anti-gun. We have gun owners in our organization. We're for common sense gun laws. And I'm like, okay, there's a fundamental difference there that, uh, probably will never be reconciled, but having touched the two a community, the way that I, I have now I've, I've received enough information to go some rights, are immutable and, and inalienable. And there are people who think they can just encroach a little bit and it's still okay. All right. There's a fundamental philosophical difference there. We can talk about that. We don't have to scream at each other. We definitely don't have to put labels on each other that are very limiting because those people still bring something to the table. At the end of the day, we all want people to stay alive and not die prematurely. You know, so um, what's the best way to do that? I don't know. We can still keep talking about it. We think our way is, you know, liberty and education, not restriction. They think theirs is legislative. All right. That's fine. But let's talk about it at least. Let's not let's not continue to, to do the us versus them that you talk about, Eugene. You know, it's like that's very contemptuous, it's very divisive, it's very toxic. And I don't I don't want that uh in America. I don't want that in my life. Uh that's what I fight as a clinician. You know, I want I want love and peace and tranquility. Yeah, and to to, to be able to sit at the table, because there's there's a lot of meetings that I'm involved with at organizations like Convergence, um, where there is every representative ever from whatever walk of life, right? Um, gun neutral, whether you're pro gun or if you'd say like the Brady and the moms demand action and every town people in the Giffords who, who Jake's right. Like they honestly don't think they're anti-gun. It's, it's really funny. Um, and then, and I guess, you know, just like we can't stereotype all of them in many cases, they aren't right. Like there are, there are gun owners in those organizations, but maybe some of them don't believe you should own ARs, but one of the one of the reasons why it's so important because Jake and I took so much flack for going to San Jose State and speaking at a Moms yeah. Demand Action event. It, it's so important that we go because we don't we don't give them the opportunity to totally control the narrative. You know, so there's you have a bunch of students, you know, hundreds of students just sitting out there watching us speak, and we're able to go first and talk about these things. And if we're not there, they could say whatever they want. Yeah. Right. Um, So we're there. And then the other thing, too, the reason why I love being part of these groups is like, I'll give you an example. Like one of the one of the girls from Giffords on one of the the panels that I was on one day was, you know, bragging to the group because we all had to introduce the things we do is all like our humble brags on everything we do as organizations. And she was so proud of, of the work they'd done on red flag laws. Well, she's saying this in front of 30 different groups. So I just chime in and I'm just like, hey, you know nice job with your work. You know, I'm glad you, you want to save lives. We want to save lives. Um, you know, if someone puts a red flag on me and it, it's, it's unjust, it's false. 
uh, you know, I'm the definition of privilege. I, I got my job through nepotism in the firearms industry. I could take three or four days off. I could hire a good lawyer. You know, I said, do you have anything in there for the single mother from Compton who works three jobs, who can't take off anything to go fight for her rights? And of course, she's like, no. And then you have all these other organizations chiming in. Hey, Mike makes a good point, <laughs> right? So I don't, we don't get to do those things if we're not there at the table. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's a, that's important part of like, you know, us too. Like, I kind of like, like to think of us as like trying to, I don't know, be a source of like being at the table as opposed to just being the typical kind of, you know, far right organization that's just parroting all the same talking points, you know, kind of comes from just being, you know, a younger generation, more open on the social issues and whatnot, and just being there to, to talk, you know, to your point. That's the idea that multiple ideas can occupy the same space. You know, it's not mutually exclusive to be a Democrat and a gun owner. What? <laughs> like, yeah, no, it, it, look yeah. at me. I'm right here. I, I, I'm it. Like, now yeah, exactly. reconcile that in your own mind. <laughs> yep, me, me too. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I know that we booked you for an hour Mike there, so I don't want to take it. <laughs> yeah, it seems like he just dipped out. So. It's like, screw this you guys. This podcast is over, right? <laughs> well, yeah, um, I mean, I I think it's a good point to leave it since we've, uh, you know, we're on for an hour, but like Eugene, Malcolm, any other like questions you have or any final <laughs> thoughts? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the only thing I wanted to say, you've probably heard it a million no, times. No, really, here really, a million really appreciate plus you guys one. coming on. I appreciate the work that you guys are doing, and I will be praying for you guys. Thanks, Godspeed. Man. I accept that. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. If you guys want to learn more, um, obviously the website, WTTA.org, WalkTheTalkAmerica.org. Um, but then my, my, uh, company Zephyr wellness, we, we have a YouTube channel where it's got one guy on it. It's me, but we have a YouTube channel. Um, but I do, uh, I do videos about, you know, psychological concepts and that kind of thing. And I, and the WTTA website has a link to this, but also the Zephyr wellness, well, Zephyr wellness.org. You can find this series of emotional functioning videos. Emotional functioning is very important to me. I think it forms the foundation of how we uh, interact with the world and how our brains respond to environmental stimuli. And from there comes all of our ability to deal with things mentally. So if you want to learn more about your emotional functioning, I'd, I'd invite people to watch those videos and um, you, know, you can email me with questions or whatever. I'm pretty accessible. Awesome. And where can our listeners uh, reach, you, uh, follow you guys on social media? Uh, at Walk the Talk US on um, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's all the same handle. At Walk the Talk US. And I'm Jake. Yeah, uh, he's. What are you, Sodini Mike? Mike's. Yeah, and and I'm I'm Jake Whisk everywhere. J A K E W S K, and the last name is pronounced Whiskershin for those of you who. Are curious um yeah but we you just go to the walk the talk site everybody's linked there yeah (laughs) it's easier to find us individually from there that's awesome well yeah that thanks guys for you know showing up on the show this has like been one of our best episodes i feel like just a lot of really great information for audience so really can't thank you enough for uh popping on yeah i appreciate being here I, i love anytime i get to share stuff with people you know that my my whole mission is 
I want to, I want to get people well. I want to live in a healthy community where my kids don't have to get bullied on the playground. I don't have to watch couples arguing in the middle of the grocery store. Um, if I could work myself out of a job and, you know, I, I'd literally do anything else to pay my bills if it meant that I lived in a happy, healthy community. So the more people who get exposed to this stuff, the better. Um, so I, I always appreciate the opportunity. It's I'm, I'm humbled. All right. All right. Keep fighting for good fight, guys. Cool. Well, Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, and thank thanks everyone for listening in uh, live and on the podcast. Uh, this has been the uh, December 2nd uh, AAPI GoCast, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks.